logistical things to you as we get started today. Uh, our youth ministry will be continuing tonight. This is week three. We just began the actual curriculum last week, so if you haven't jumped in yet, you're not behind at all. They're going through a study of the redemptive trajectory of Scripture. In other words, how God throughout the Scriptures proves and promises that He will redeem His people through His Son, Jesus. And then we're trying to work with your young people to help them see how the gospel applies to every facet of life. So that it's more than just a message of Jesus dying and accepting him by faith, but that because of his grace, that there's dimensions of truth for every area of life, relationships and everything else. So we're, we're working with your young people to help them develop great gospel fluency. It's kind of how we say it. We want them to be very aware of the implications of the gospel for all of life. And so we're excited about what God's doing in our youth ministry. Also, next Sunday after the service, we'll have a brief meeting to review last quarter's finances. We'll also uh, just provide a few words for the upcoming budget meeting. We run July to July with our fiscal year, so we have some things we'll kind of begin to update you about as we head toward the new fiscal year. Also, next Sunday uh, afternoon, we're going to provide another opportunity for those who are interested in joining the church. So we have what we call Life at North Point, which is an orientation to who we are as a church. If you're interested in that and haven't already let me know, let me know. We'll make sure you get included in that. And also, this is a little further out, about a month, but I want to prepare you now so that you can mark it down on your calendar. But uh, next month, actually Mother's Day, is our 10th anniversary as a church. And so we're not going to celebrate on Mother's Day because that's not a good day to do anything because you're going to be with your families. But we're going to wait until the 22nd, so Sunday, May 22nd, and we're going to have a pretty big celebration that day. Our worship gathering will be geared around celebrating God's grace to us over the past decade, which sounds like a long time now, and then we'll have a meal afterwards, so we'll communicate more about that in the upcoming days, but, but plan ahead for May 22nd. We're going to celebrate and uh, have a good party as a church to uh, recognize all that God's done for us, so I hope that you'll be here and join us for that. If you don't mind, be turning in your Bibles, please, to Genesis 48. Genesis chapters 48 and 49 are really one big unit broken up into two separate chapters. This week we will cover the first part of that larger story. We have been studying now together through the book of Genesis for quite a while. We cover around a chapter a week. We've been at this, obviously, for well over a year. And we're coming now toward the very end. And Moses, who was a master storyteller, is wrapping things up. And as he's wrapping things up in this first book that he wrote, the first book of our Christian scriptures, he wants to communicate some final things to his original audience, to the people of Israel. And he wants them to know that their God, the one true God, is God Almighty. And on the one hand, if you knew that to be true, that God is Almighty, in fact, that's one of his titles. Moses uses that title here in Genesis 48. You might know it from that old Amy Grant song, El Shaddai, back when Christian contemporary music started getting somewhat cool. That's what the name means. God is almighty. If you knew that, if you knew that God was almighty, that might freak you out. 
It might frighten you if this second truth were not true for us. And that is that not only is he almighty, but that because of his might, because of his unbreakable power, because no one can stop his plans, because no one can thwart his affections for his people, because he is forever faithful, that his might, that his power doesn't frighten us to death, but gives us quiet, humble confidence that we can trust him both now and for forever. And Moses desperately wanted his people to know that. Moses, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity, a people who were frail, fragile, prone to fear, quick to rebel, they easily forgot, they were frustrated with themselves, frustrated with their leaders, often frustrated with God, whom they did not understand at all. Moses wanted to carefully, sequentially, over time, press into their heads and into their hearts that their God was full of might, and that because he was good, that they could trust him to be faithful. Moses, who led these people out of captivity toward the land of promise, a land that the first generation would never see with their own eyes, he desperately wanted those people to know that they could trust their God. We are not very dissimilar from Israel. We are a people given to fear. We are a people given to wandering often in the wilderness. We are a people headed toward a land that we have not yet seen, a final rest that we have not yet enjoyed a people that wanders not only in our hearts, but in our heads. We are often frustrated. We are often confused. It is not true for most of us that our days are filled with happiness, the pinnacle of joy. Most of us go in and out of pain and joy, sorrow and happiness, doubt, fear, and confidence, and that is our sojourn. And Moses recorded these things thousands of years ago for people just like us that needed to know that their God was powerful and faithful. And we too today, not dissimilar, need to know that our God is powerful and faithful. Let's read together Genesis 48. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. 
They should be called by the name of their brothers and in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. May God's Spirit bless to us the reading of His Word. The first thing this text reveals to us is that God Almighty never allows evil to have the final word. God Almighty never allows evil to have the final word. As we have studied together through the book of Genesis, we found that Jacob started off very poorly. Jacob was a deceiver. And he came by it honestly because he came from a line of deceivers. His father was a deceiver. His grandfather, Abraham, the people of Israel who came from Abraham, he was a deceiver. Jacob, like they, inherited evil from his forefathers. But God would not allow evil. God would not allow indwelling sin to have the final word for Jacob. God Almighty who not only made the world, made the heart. And God Almighty alone is able to change the heart. And God Almighty, who made promises to Adam and Eve in the garden that he would not allow evil to have the final word, 
that though the serpent, through his deceit, had brought cursing upon the people, that God promised that he would triumph in grace. And ever since Adam and Eve, his grace had been triumphing. And here again in Jacob's life, in the life of Jacob's family, he demonstrates to us through Moses' pen that evil will not have the final word. Jacob's life shows this to us, that God changed his heart, that despite the fact that he experienced not only loss because of his sin, but the normal loss of death. His great love, Rachel, had died before she was able to enjoy life with him back in the land of promise. Jacob had experienced great loss, missing many years with his favorite son, experiencing the pain of his other son's sin. Their sin, their treachery, had made deep and dark marks, had left scars upon Jacob's heart. But now for these past 17 years, Jacob was able to enjoy once again the promise of redemption. And he speaks of this to his son. But he wasn't the only one who had experienced loss. Joseph himself. Joseph had left the land of promise, not by his own will, but because his brothers had sold him into slavery. And as he went into the land and began to experience favor, he was treasoned against. Someone named Potiphar, for whom he had once worked, his wife had tried to seduce him, and Joseph would not give in, seeking to live righteously for his God. She lied about it, and he was thrown in prison, and he was forgotten for a long time. But eventually, as we learned, God brought him out, placed him in second command in the empire, and he rose to power. And after many years of bitterness, God brought him joy giving him these sons. Eventually, through God's providence, Joseph is able to once again be rejoined with his family as they come to the land of Egypt to flee the dark and deep famine that had settled upon the land in God's providence. And now they are rejoined. And after many years of bitterness, just like his own father, Joseph begins to experience the blessing of God's smile upon him. And in Jacob's life, And in Joseph's life, we see that over many decades, though we're laced with evil, God will not allow evil to have the final word. It is difficult for us because we can read a chapter of the Bible in a couple of minutes, and sometimes in the sweep of a couple of minutes, we can see the sweep of decades going by. Jacob comes to the land of Egypt when he's around 130, and we know that he lives to around 147. So in the span of one chapter, 17 years go by. We get to read big sweeps of history. It's not like our lives, though. In our lives, we experience moment by moment, often excruciating weight, delay, pain, struggle. Sometimes all we can see is the darkness. It's hard for us to to get above it. It's hard for us to see beyond it. It's one thing to look at the scriptures and to see a sweep of 17 years go by, to see pain turning into joy, sorrow turning into happiness, evil coming out well. It's difficult with our lives. We can't really see the end. 
Sometimes it's hard for us to see around the bend of the next day. Jesus knew this, and he told his people to not worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow has enough evil in and of itself, but to trust God for the day. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's difficult when you're experiencing loss and pain, especially longer seasons of loss and pain, to believe that good can come of it. But there is a reason why the Scriptures move at such a pace. They allow us to rise above, to be a bit on the mountaintop, if you will, to gain some perspective. And though the life of Jacob is real, Joseph, his son, though it is long and filled with an arduous path marked by pain and loss, it turns out in the end that God is faithful, that God indeed does keep his promises. And in the sweep of years, we can gain confidence that God sees things from a much larger perspective than we do. And I say to you, beloved, today that I understand. I understand that when you are in the midst of difficulty and trial, especially prolonged difficulty and trial, it is hard to see above. It is hard to see the sweep of all that God is doing. But I think in two senses, God encourages us. Number one, his word has been written down for our encouragement. Moses wrote these things down for the encouragement of Israel. Israel, who eventually would remain in this land of Egypt, a land that initially was a blessing, a place of restoration and refuge, a place that eventually would become marked by bitterness and captivity. And they would be there for four centuries. You want to talk about a big sweep of history that happens in the turning of a page? If you turn from Genesis 50 to Exodus chapter 1, you have just skipped 400 years. In that sweep of history, God allows happiness to turn once again into bitterness. In Moses' own life, in the first few chapters of Exodus, you find another big sweep of years marked initially by rescue, being brought out of the water as a baby who should have died but was rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised in Pharaoh's royal court, eventually cast out as an older man, and then a much older man, after many years of wilderness wandering, is brought back to lead the people out of Egypt. Lots of years have gone by, in and out of pain and suffering and joy and happiness, only once again to return to bitterness and despair. And God sends a rescuer named Moses to come and lead the people out of captivity. And these people, fragile because of broken, bitter experience, look at this man named Moses who comes to them and proclaims that not only is God mighty, but God is a covenant-keeping God. He is their Lord, and He will bless them and keep them and take them back to the land of promise that He promised to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. They had a hard time believing that. They were skeptical. They were cynical. But in this great sweep of history that we can cover in just the turning of a couple of pages, God is proving something from a very big perspective. 
And that is that God sees everything from the end because he has planned it. And because God is mighty, the end will come to pass. If God were only good and not mighty, the future might be in doubt. If God were only mighty and not good, could we really trust him as a loving father who would bring all of his promises to pass? But God is mighty and he is good. And again and again and again, his word promises us these truths. So from that perspective, the word is essential for your sojourn. If you're like me, when you are down, when I am prone to being down at times, especially as I get older, I don't know exactly how to explain that. Maybe it's the fact that I understand life better. My head is not in the clouds anymore. Some of it's probably because of my occupation. I, I work with you and, and walking through the sojourn, which is often marked by trial and pain and sorrow. And as I get older, I, I tend to move in and out of times of sorrow and joy. But if you're like me, especially in those times of sorrow, it is difficult to come to the Word. I want to figure life out on my own. I just want the pain and sorrow to go away. Often the last thing I feel like doing is coming to the Word. But how will I continue on my sojourn? How will I make it to the end if I am not reminded in the turning of the pages of Scripture in short expanses or long expanses of years, that my God is mighty and that my God is good. It is e easy when I'm in the midst of times of pain to believe that the evil around me and the evil inside of me will have the final word. But beloved, God's word tells us that that is not true. And though it may not feel like it, the most rational thing that you can do when you are experiencing these times of darkness and you cannot see the way ahead is to come back to the Word and fight for faith. I also encourage you to be a person who pays attention to your own trajectory, who pays attention to your own path, to your sojourn. Because along the way, what you will find is that the promises of God's Word are true. Through your story, through the experiences of your life, God will prove to you that in His might and in His grace, He will take care of you. God Almighty never allows evil to have the final word. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. These are some of the most well-known and beloved verses in all of the Christian scriptures. And there's a reason for that. They promise us that despite the fact that this world is so very disappointing, that often marked, it is often marked with pain and trial, that our trials will not be the final word. Let's read a few verses from this section. The apostle says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We who are called according to his purpose are the ones who long, in verse 19. We are the ones who groan, the apostle says. 
But we know that our groaning, our longing will be met with the promise of redemption. Verse 29, the apostle says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Look in verse 37. No, and all these things, things like tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And brothers and sisters, that is why evil will not have the final word. Because the Son of God, eternal God himself, King and Savior of his people, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, He has the final word. And the final word is salvation. It may not feel like it today, but God brings good out of evil. And Jesus is the final promise. He who came, obeyed all of God's laws, who understands our weaknesses, the frailty of human flesh, Son of God, Son of Man, who died in our place, raised victorious, ascended to the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of those with whom He identifies, He is God's final word, and we can trust Him. Genesis 48 proves to us that God Almighty never allows evil to have the final word. Genesis 48 also proves to us that God Almighty's sovereign choices are always designed to highlight His freedom and grace. This story is interesting, and if we did not read it in the context of the broader sweep of the book, it might be a little bit confusing. It was normal back in that day that the older child, in particular the oldest son, got the blessing, the birthright. In our terms today, he got the inheritance. Joseph brings his sons, with which God had blessed him, to his father Jacob. But surprisingly, Jacob, Israel, gives the lion's share of blessing not to Manasseh, the older, but to Ephraim, the younger. This is not surprising in the broader sweep of the book because the same thing happened to Jacob. God chose that he would give his blessing to Jacob and not Esau, much like it happened to Isaac. Isaac was blessed and not Ishmael. Abraham himself was chosen out of obscurity, a pagan. God had been doing this from the beginning. God chooses based upon his own freedom. But his freedom is not capricious. His freedom is not used to show that he is unkind or arbitrary. His freedom will always result in bringing grace to those whom he loves. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Romans chapter 9. 
We will not read this entire section, but we will highlight a couple of things in this section. This is a challenging chapter of the Bible. It's challenging because it presents to us a difficult truth, and that is that God is totally free in choosing whom He will for redemption. We find here in this section that God chose Jacob and God did not choose Israel. Verse 8 of Romans 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Later on, down in this section, we find, I think, Paul's main point in this text. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, our man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, God is free to do as he wants because he is God. But then notice what Paul says, I think the thrust of the text. What if God, perfect in freedom, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Because of God's perfect freedom, he chooses to himself those whom he will save. As you read the first 39 books of the Old Testament, you might believe that only the people of Israel, Jacob's offspring, would experience the promise of redemption. But going all the way back to Genesis chapters 11 and 12, we have to remember that God promised Abraham that he would build a nation through him, a nation that would be called Israel. But he promised Abraham that through that nation he would bless the world. Then Paul's point in Romans chapter 9 is though all people deserve the wrath of God because of their sin, God chooses to highlight his grace by rescuing some including us. And almost always in the scriptures, when God's sovereign purposes are detailed, when his election is spoken of, it is spoken of in the context of encouraging the saints, the chosen ones, like us. We who ourselves deserve wrath, we who because of God's grace highlight the fact that though all people deserve punishment, that God chose to punish His Son instead 
and redeem some, that they might be trophies of His grace, that we might highlight the fact that though God's righteousness is displayed in justice, God's righteousness is also displayed in redemption and grace. What we find in the case of Manasseh and Ephraim is that God does something that is unexpected, blessing the younger instead of the older, just like He had done with Jacob instead of Esau. This is a difficult doctrine. It is difficult because it takes us into the mysterious side of God that we cannot fully comprehend. But we can say at least a couple of things. That God is perfectly free and perfectly just in punishing sin. But God is likewise perfectly free and perfectly just in redeeming the righteous because He has punished sin in His Son. Not because of the death of His Son, or not because of the sin of His Son, rather, but because of our own sin. Jesus bearing it in our place, becoming our substitute. We are not sitting here today understanding the Word of God with newly regenerated hearts because we sought God. We are not sitting here today enjoying His grace, believing His promises, knowing that good comes out of evil because we deserved it. Brothers and sisters, we stand here today, or sit as it were, resting in the grace of God because God is perfectly free and God wants to highlight His grace against the backdrop of human sinfulness. Throughout the Scriptures, we find that God is perfectly free and God's freedom, He redeems many. And we are recipients of that grace. Genesis 48 reveals to us deep truths that God Almighty never allows evil to have the final word. And God Almighty's sovereign choices are always designed to highlight His freedom and His grace. And I want to underscore that. For though these are difficult doctrines, often hard to understand, the point of them for the saints, we're the ones who read them, we're the ones who care about them, we're the ones who embrace them by faith, these things are written down to encourage you. They're not written down to discourage you. They're not written down to confuse you. They're not written down to make you prideful. They're written down to make you humble. They're written down to make you know that you are loved. So as you respond to these deep truths, that's how you should respond. With humility, with trust, with gratitude with confidence. Brothers and sisters, evil will never have the final word for you if you have been chosen by God. And how will you know? You will know you have been chosen by God if you are trusting and resting in Jesus alone. So I call you to that today. You cannot discern whether or not God has chosen you for redemption, just like Joseph didn't know that Ephraim would experience the blessing instead of Manasseh. So I call you today not to try to discern the mysterious counsels of God, but to trust His provision for you in Christ. And as many as receive Jesus by faith, you will know that you are the sons and daughters of God. And I call you to that today. Receive Jesus as your only source of righteousness. You have none, but He has given you the Son that you might have life. Repent and turn from your sin and turn to the one who alone can give you life. 
There's a third thing this text reveals to us, and that is that God Almighty will fulfill all of His promises to His people. That's what the end of this text is really all about. At the end of Genesis 48, Israel, or Jacob, says to Joseph, his son, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you, will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Despite the fact that Joseph had experienced great loss, God shows him that he has not forgotten him. Joseph gets a double blessing. In some ways, Joseph takes the place of the firstborn himself. Jacob, his father, in some ways, adopts his two older sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, making them his own and giving them each a share of the inheritance among his own sons. Later on in the scriptures, sometimes Simeon, one of Jacob's sons, is obscured from his own inheritance. Instead, Joseph gets double. Sometimes it's Levi. Levi and Simeon were often very sinful. In fact, we know from the pages of Scripture that they themselves did really terrible things. But God blessed Joseph and honored his faithfulness and gives him a double blessing. Joseph's offspring, back in the land of promise, will have a special place where they will be honored and blessed for their faithfulness. But more so, the general promise here is what really Jacob is highlighting. And that is that the people of Israel, though they will sojourn in the land of Egypt for a long time, that will not be the final word for them. They will go back to the land of promise. They will find rest back in the land that God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That though their sojourn in Egypt would seem so very long, it would not be their final destination. What Israel, what Jacob says to his son here is that we will go back. We will get to go home. Think about what those words would have sounded like for Israel. Moses, who wrote these things down after hundreds of years of captivity, could say to the people of Israel, we're going home. God keeps His promises. Despite the fact that the delays are long, despite the fact that your heart has been rent in two, individually and as a nation, God sees us and God loves us and God will not forget us. Let's trace this thought through the Scriptures. Look with me at the end of Genesis 50. We're giving a little bit away of the end of the story, but this is helpful as we discern what Moses is trying to communicate in Genesis 48. So here's a little precursor to the end of the story. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Remember, he came to Egypt when he was 17, so he was there about 100 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph makes his family swear that they will take his bones, this man who was second in command of the empire of Egypt, back home. Turn with me, please, to Exodus 13. If you know the story of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt, God brings plagues upon Egypt to convince Pharaoh and the people to let the people of Israel go. It's interesting because they leave not just with their bare possessions, but they plunder the people of Egypt. They beg them to leave. But that's not the only thing that they take with them, not just the treasures of Egypt. Notice Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. God kept his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, and to Israel, the nation. Moses would lead the first generation out of Egypt. That first generation would die in the wilderness because of their own sin. His successor, Joshua, would lead the second generation into the land of promise, conquering the evil people who lived in Canaan, taking back the land of promise for their own. And the book of Joshua ends like this. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, and the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants Joseph. These little seemingly obscure references are the historical traces of God always keeping his promises, despite the fact, brothers and sisters, that sometimes it took a very long time. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, the sons of Reuben, the chronicler says, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn because he defiled his father's couch, he took his stepmother as his concubine for a period. His birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so he could not be enrolled as the oldest son, though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him. Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Joseph, despite many years of suffering, was given the promise of birthright. Not because of birth order, because of God's sovereign, gracious choice. And he would take Joseph and his children, and his children's children, and their broader family back home, keeping his promise that despite delay, despite human sinfulness, God does just that. He always keeps his promises. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. 
the psalmist tells us that just like God kept his promises to Israel, he keeps his promises to his people. We can trust him these many thousands of years later. We can trust him not just with our future, but with the future of our children. One of the interesting things that I think that you find here in Genesis 48 is the perspective of a grandparent. Those of us who are raising kids, and a lot of us are raising youngish kids right now, it's hard for us because we live in the moment. We're changing diapers, we're feeding bottles, we're helping with homework, we're correcting behavior, and often we're just living in the moment, surviving you know, by the skin of our teeth. It's tough being a parent of young kids. And isn't it frustrating sometimes when you're a parent and, you're, and your parents are over, so grandma and grandpa, nana and poppy or whatever you call them, and they're over and, and they're giving you advice, like, like big picture advice, and, and you have like puke on your left shoulder and your house stinks because of dirty diapers and the walls have holes in them because the kids are absolutely you know, insane, they're lunatics. And, and here are your parents sitting on the couch, nodding at you, looking very wise, and it just really frustrates you. Most of us can't have the perspective of grandparents because we're not there. But few of you are. I look forward to the day when I'm a grandparent, when I can hand children off back to my children and I can go home. And I can take my wife out for dates and I don't have to get babysitters and, and all those things. There has to be something really joyful to be a grandparent. Because you can look backward. You can look backward and you can see life in a broad sweep. And you think a lot about the future. And let's be honest, it's a little closer for you than it might be for some of us who are a little younger. Unless that make you a little bit upset. That's the way life works, by the way. We get older. But, but you think about the past. You think about the future. Often more than some of us younger people do because we're just trying to survive in the moment. And you, grandparents, you're able to look back and think a lot about looking forward. You think about legacy. And as Christian grandparents, you think about the legacy of faith. And as you sit on the couch and you watch your daughter with spit up on her shoulder, trying to survive bleary-eyed, you know, because you were there. And you look forward, and you want for your daughter and your daughter's daughter, more than anything else, to love Jesus, to know him, to rest in him, to believe and trust his promises. And though I do not think this is the major application of this text, I want to say to you who are a little older in our midst today, we need you. We need you because you look backward and you can see. You know from life experience how God is faithful. And because you are looking ahead, you can tell us to be faithful. You can help us along the way. Jacob's blessing to his son and to his son's sons was precious. And the way, grandparents, that you can bless us is to tell us what's true and to remind us that as God has always been faithful to you, he will be faithful to us in the future. That God was generationally faithful to Abraham's family. God has been generationally faithful to our church the most precious resource that we have is behind me right now where all those kids are gathered together in the nursery and kids' church and tonight in our youth ministry. And may God take all of those children 
those who are given to us as parents and grandparents and raise them up as another generation that loves him better than we did and who trust in his gracious promises. We know this is true because God's word tells us it's true. In Psalm 100, we are called to rejoice. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Grandparents, parents, children, our God is good. He is worthy of our confidence. We can trust him. This might be a good corollary little follow-up for you. Some of you, if you'd like to do some more study in these themes, Psalm 105 is the psalmist's way of summing up much of the history of Israel. And in this psalm, he calls the people to praise and to trust God. We will not turn there today, but you might want to mark that down. It's a good way to follow up and drive these truths into your heart by the grace of the Spirit. For the sake of quick review, all of us today can believe that God Almighty will never allow evil to have the final word. God Almighty's sovereign choices, though mysterious, are always designed to highlight His freedom and His grace. And God Almighty will fulfill all of His promises to His people. The very fundamental question is this, will we be okay? You may not articulate that out loud, but that's the nagging question in all of your heads and all of your hearts. God's word and your life proclaims loudly, you will be okay because God Almighty is faithful. Let's pray.